Amen. Good morning. How are y'all doing? It's good to see you. Take uh, your copy of God's Word and uh, turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we are going to uh, continue through our series uh, this morning uh, in, our, in the book of James. And uh, where we get to this morning is what I believe is the central text in the book of James. All right? So it's not right there in the center of James. We'll be there in a couple weeks, but it is the central uh, passage, I believe. And I think it's a very simple text, and yet it's created a lot of difficulty in people's minds. All right? it's, a, it's the subject of some major controversy throughout the history of the church. And so in light of that, I want to be really clear this morning. So I'm not as interested in, you know, you walking away going, uh, I, man, I enjoyed that message as much as I am you walking away going, I understood that message. All right, so, and one reason is because there's a very clear warning in this. So let me just time out there and say, here, we're, the way we approach the teaching of God's Word is we allow God's Word to teach us. Uh, we believe God's Word is inspired. We believe it's inerrant, without error. And we believe it's sufficient. We believe it's complete. And so what we want to do is we want to lay our lives down next to Scripture, believing that it's our source of authority, it's the source of life, it's the source of truth, and we want it to be in the driver's seat. And so uh, a way that we allow it to do that is expositional teaching. We just walk verse by verse through Scripture, mining the text to see what's there. Try not to bring our presuppositions to it, uh, our thoughts to it, but let it speak to us. Let it inform us as to how we should think and how we should live. And so uh, as we get to this portion, this, there's some difficult stuff here, all right? Uh, but it's important stuff. And what's important about this passage is it's a very important warning. All right, And this isn't a warning, when I say warning, I don't mean this is a warning for people out in the world right now. Right? This isn't a warning for uh, people who have no interest in what's going on like in here right now. Who People who are out in the world and in our community right now who are disinterested in uh, the Word of God or with uh, coming to a church service like this, right? This is a warning for people in seats in churches this morning. Uh, so people who, what James is going to say, talk the talk of faith, but don't walk the walk of faith. And so let me just begin this morning by asking this question. Do you possess authentic faith this morning? Don't answer that out loud. Do you possess authentic faith this morning? And if your answer to that is yes, the follow-up question would be, how do you know that? How do you know it's real? How do you know it's genuine? How do you know it's authentic? All right? There are times in life when something being genuine and authentic, it, it matters. And then there's some times in our life that it doesn't matter. All right? Sometimes we don't care. Like my son, my boys are playing spring baseball right now. And so uh, Max, my seven-year-old, uh, when I bought his glove, I didn't care that I wasn't looking for a a glove made of genuine leather, right? Uh, for a couple reasons. One is because he's going to grow out of that glove pretty quick. The second reason, and probably the most important reason, is there's about an 89% chance that that glove is getting left somewhere or lost this season, all right? So the fact that it's imitation leather doesn't bother me. However, there's other times, like for example, if I was to sell one of my vehicles, or you were to sell one of your vehicles today, you can put yourself in this scenario. And you communicated with someone and they were going to pay cash for it. And you met them somewhere and they pull out a briefcase and open it up. And it's got Monopoly money in it. A deal's not going to be made, right? That's a scenario for all of us where it's going, authenticity is going to matter in that moment. 
Well, there's an area that James is putting his finger on right here where authenticity in our life is more crucial and critical than any other area. All right. This is the issue that James is dealing with right here. The authenticity of our faith. And it's a matter of eternal life and death. It's that serious. And so my prayer is that I will be clear. You know, the Bible talks about faith a lot, right? Faith is what we believe is what saves us, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ is how someone's reconciled to God, how someone's sins are forgiven, how someone is brought into the family of God. It's all by faith. It's like the funnel through which God pours his grace into someone's life. But again, how do you know that's happened in your life? How do you know that your faith is real? James is going to lay two types of faith uh, next to each other in this passage, and we're going to look at those this morning. So stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in chapter 14. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? For brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Hey, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead. Here it is again, third time he's made this point. So also faith apart from works is dead. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we pray that you would come, your spirit would come and be our teacher today. God, we know the unfolding of your words gives life and understanding to the simple as your word says. So we pray that it would do that. We acknowledge that we, have, we, we are simple-minded people and we need help understanding your truth. Uh, we are the sheep, you are the shepherd. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us in passive righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, we pray that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we pray that we would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And, Lord, I pray that you would help our minds to understand truth that we can't understand and comprehend on our own. I pray that you'd help our hearts to believe what we can't believe on our own. And I pray that we'd apply in our lives the truth that we cannot apply in and of our own strength. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So James, through this book, if you've been in this uh, series with us at all, you, you've uh, seen that along the way already, James is offering a lot of practical help in different areas in the lives of believers. And it's in the lives of believers in the church that he was originally writing to who, who had lost their way, who uh, they weren't demonstrating a, a devotion to the Lord, maybe that they had once uh, demonstrated that they should be showing. They weren't treating people the way that they should that reflected the character of Christ. They weren't walking through trials in a way that honored God. They weren't uh, fighting and battling against temptation the way that 
They should. And James doesn't hold back, right? He's just like, get to work. He like gets up in your face in this book. It's a bossy little book. And he loves you enough to say, hey, you're not supposed to be living that way. Get to work. He doesn't hold back. Somebody a few weeks ago uh, said that uh, I think a good sermon series title for this, a better one would be uh, for James. The book of James is shut up and do it. Right. Which is true. Right. I'm not sure how that graph would look on a screen, but it's it, uh, it, it, it is the point, I believe, that James is getting at. Like, just do it. Like, let's go. And we need that truth. We need that kind of teaching. We need that kind of truth because we wander. We're self-deceivers. Even in our flesh, even after we come to Christ, we need just stark reminders of who we are, of, of our identity, right? At times to snap us out of times of drifting or, or spiritual apathy. But at this point in the letter, it's as if James is acknowledging the fact that not everybody that he's writing to is just drifting believers. People who just need a reminder to, to kind of get back where they belong and to treat people the way that they know that they should treat them. He's, he's targeting a people in this passage right here who are mixed in with the rest of the church who profess Jesus as Lord, who claim to possess real faith, but who have zero evidence in the life in the way that they live their life. Who, who showed zero effort to treat people with love. So zero effort to walk through trials in a way that honors God. But there's not a blip of evidence in the way, in affections of their heart and in their actions and attitude and in their life that they belong to Jesus. They're people who are disciples of Jesus in name only. That is who James is primarily addressing right here. And this is a very a relevant passage in, in 2022. Right? There's been a widespread problem in evangelical Christianity of something called easy believism. All right? That's where it, we've kind of, I think, well-meaning efforts to, to, to invite people to come to Christ. And we have a time on Sunday mornings where we're going to invite you to come to Christ. And we're going to get some information from you on a Sunday morning if you make a decision for Christ. We're not against that. But over the years, there's just kind of been a whatever-it-takes kind of effort at times to get people to make decisions, to sign a card, to repeat a prayer, to, to raise their hand, to intellectually agree with a collection of facts about Jesus, but who aren't also confronted with the gospel truth that to become a Christian involves, yes, believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but it's also in the words of Christ himself. It involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, your King, the boss of your life. And if there's no change in your life and just a profession of faith, no desire in your life for him to reign in your life as King, what James is saying is where there is no fruit of transformation in your life, you can't have assurance that there's salvation there. The gospel is not just some abstract kind of floating out there idea in the heavens. It transforms your life. You're like, oh, this ain't going to be a K-love positive encouraging message this morning. <laughs> but this is important truth. Listen, we don't want to become a church that is so fixated on producing converts and decisions, we're not taking up our biblical responsibility to develop disciples. So what this text does is it lays clearly down side by side two types of faith. All right, the first one that we'll look at is this. There's, James says there's a bogus faith that's unfruitful. There's a bogus faith that's unfruitful. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And James, his literary style, it's brilliant. You know, he's just a really good writer. And so he kind of moves through this quickly, and he asks questions, and there's implied answers that you 
can, can hear in your mind if you've studied God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the, and the implied answer is no. And then he unpacks for the rest of the message. In fact, he comes back to it three times, uh, two times throughout the, this passage and then one time at the end that we just read to show you that, that, that no is the right implied answer to that question because of the kind of faith that's there. It's dead. Of course it can't save. It's dead faith. It's bogus faith. And in verses 15 through 19, James gives you some things that characterize bogus faith. These are things to look for, all right? And so uh, we all just need to lay our hearts next to Scripture and uh, allow it to speak to us. So what are the markers of bogus faith? Number one is this. Bogus faith produces words without works. Bogus faith produces words without works. So James gives us an illustration in verses 15 and 16 right there to demonstrate the pointlessness of words without action. All right, in this example, you see a fellow believer who needs clothes, needs food, and they come to a group of so-called Christians. They present their needs, and, but all the so-called Christian gives them is some nice words. Right? The, notice the words that they're saying aren't wrong. They're nice words. They're warm, they're flowery, they're good, they're, they're right words, they're theological, theologically correct words. But the problem is, is there's no action. There's nothing being done to actually help this person who is obviously hungry. This is showing us that the right things can be said, that good things can be said, good things can be believed, godly things can be shared. But if all they are are words that never turn into action, he's saying something is desperately wrong with your faith. Can you imagine somebody showing up this morning, a brother or sister in Christ, and they look depleted, they look like they need food, and they say, man, we're, we're hungry, we haven't had a decent meal in days. And you say, just come in here, come in here, we're meeting, we're meeting for a Bible study, come on in. No, I don't want to sit down, I'm, I'm hungry. No, just sit down, we're going to have, just listen, we're going to have a, sh- quiet, let's get into the Bible study. Did you know that the Bible says Jesus is the great miracle worker? That he's the great chef that feeds every soul? That he's the shepherd that feeds his sheep? That he's a friend when you're troubled. He's an ever-present help in time of need. In fact, one time, we're hungry. Shh, shh, I know, I know. Just, just listen to the word. One time he took the Israelites in the wilderness and he actually fed them miraculously out of heaven with manna. And it filled their bellies. This other time, uh, Jesus, he took a little boy's lunch and he fed 5,000 people. They say, yeah, but we're, we're really hungry. Shh, uh, we're going to pray real quick. Let's just pray. Bow your head and close your eyes. And they pray, thank you, God, for being our way maker, God, for giving us everything that we need. Lord, manifest your presence in the lives of these hungry, starving people who need clothes. Fill them, we pray. Amen. All right, you guys, but we need some. Just close the door on your way out. I hope you enjoyed the lesson. Why don't you share that with somebody today? James would say, if you heard that kind of scenario, they didn't need all that. Like those are true words. Those are good words. Right. But in that moment, they didn't need a sermon. They needed a sandwich is what he would say. Like they needed a, a ham. Ooh, what happened there? Ham sandwich with like some mayonnaise, right? The sanctified way you're supposed to eat a sandwich. Right. Sweet tea, some Cool Ranch Doritos. Am I making you hungry? That's what they needed. They didn't need well wishes. They didn't need all the right Christian phrases. And as good as those words were, they, like, they didn't need a prayer in that moment. They needed a plate. They needed food. And what James is saying, beware of the right flowery words when there's no kind of fruitfulness accompanying those. So he's talking about people who talk a good game, but nothing to back it up. Second thing is this, bogus faith 
professes faith without proof. Look at verse 18 again. But someone will say you have faith and have works. Show me your faith apart from my, from works and I'll show you my, my faith by my works. And so James, you got to notice the parentheses there in that verse on the other side where he says you have faith and I have works. Those are the words of what James is setting up as like a hypothetical objector. So he, he knows that people are thinking this way in uh, you know, the congregations that he's writing to. And he's saying, you know, he's writing you know, with this objector, how they would object. He said, and some of you will say, well, you have faith and, and I have works. In other words, people were wrongly thinking, people professing their faith in Jesus Christ, they were wrongly thinking that faith and works are separable, right? That they're not married, that they don't go together. Like, like they, were, they were, you know, kind of, Selling this, you know, some people, maybe faith's your thing, right? And if that's your thing, that's okay, you know? And for some of you, works is your thing. Like you choose whatever you want. Like in the same way, you may go to a restaurant this afternoon and the waitress may come over and go, hey, do you want super salad? Pick one. I don't care. She doesn't care what you want. You just pick one. They're like, hey, just pick one. Take your pick. Do you want works or do you want faith? James is saying, that's not how it works. He says, show me your faith separated from works. I will show you my faith by my works, they're married. And if there's no signs of transformation in your life, what he's saying is there's no evidence of salvation that's occurred in your life. And make a note, this is really important right here, what he's saying, because notice that he's talking directly to people who are professing faith in the right object of faith. Right? They're saying, we have faith. We've heard the gospel preached. We believe Jesus is the way to heaven. Maybe a modern day version of this would be, hey, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I walked an aisle at some point in my life. I, I signed a card at some point in my life. If anybody were to ask me today, if I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, I would say, yes, James is saying, just pump the brakes for a second. Has the way you lived your life, the affections of your heart, your attitude, have your actions given a yes to that question? James is not talking about someone who refuses to say or profess Jesus as Lord. He's talking to people who refuse to live like Jesus is their Lord. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a noticeable progression. A noticeable progression and pattern in someone's life of at times falling into sin and even drifting away. Listen, but being sensitive to the Holy Spirit that is in their life and the evidence that it's in their life as they're listening and they're repenting and they're confessing sin and coming back to God. Their, their appetites for the things that God loves are increasing, increasing and the, their appetite for the things that God hates are de- is decreasing. Not talking about perfection, we're talking about progression. He's saying if, if, there's, no, if there's no progression in your life, if there's no effort to make to, to, for any works in your life, then there's no demonstration that salvation has occurred in your life. It's just words. Well, I, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe that Jesus is my Lord. Based on what? Just because you say that? Like, I can say a lot of things. I can say right now that I'm a, I can say right now I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. I can say, <laughs> he knows me well. I can say that I'm an FSU fan. Liar. There's, there's no fruit in that statement. You follow me around a little bit this fall, text me on Saturdays and ask me kind of what I'm doing. You're going to find that me saying, just saying that I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan or saying that I'm an FSU fan, that that statement will bear no fruit. And when it comes to your Christianity, what James is saying is talk is cheap. 
We show our faith by our works. Third thing is this about bogus faith. Bogus faith retains doctrine without devotion. Verse 19, James is like, you believe God is one, you do well. He's bringing up the Shema right there. He's bringing something very familiar up right here from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that all the Jews would have recited daily. And he's saying, yeah, you're reciting something that's theologically correct every day. You're believing the right doctrine. But then he gets sarcastic here and he goes, that's good. Even demons do that. The demons believe God is one. And he says they shudder. They tremble. They believe truth about God. They believe, they believe truths about Jesus. They, they believe that the only way somebody can be reconciled to God is through Christ. And yet they remain unreconciled. They aren't friends with God like Abraham. There's no transformation. There's no devotion to God. So there's a a maintaining of doctrine, but not a devotion to their creator. In other words, there's a difference, and this is so important. There's a difference just between simply ascending to intellectual facts about Jesus. There's a difference between just knowing things about Jesus and saying that you believe in them in him in that sense and actually knowing him. Experiencing a vibrant relationship with him, being known by him. Churches around the world this morning are filled with people who have intellectually assented to a collection of facts about Jesus, but haven't thrown the full weight of their faith on Christ Jesus. The sense that they've received him as savior, but also received him as Lord of their life. It's, it's full of people who haven't done that. They've simply ascended to a collection of facts about Jesus Christ. And they've kind of turned him into their own customized savior. And they cling to their version of Jesus as some kind of keep me out of hell insurance policy that I'm going to keep filed away. Kind of out of sight as I live my life on my terms throughout my entire life, and then one day when it's time for me to leave planet Earth, I'll go, where, where did that insurance policy go? I'm pretty sure I had this figured out. I'm pretty sure I went into the office and we cleared this up and got all the signatures in the right place. He's saying no. Biblical Christianity involves devoting your life to this crucified, resurrected king. Here is, here's the troubling reality this morning. Hell is full and will be full for eternity with people who are Trinitarian and Orthodox and doctrinally sound in their beliefs, but who are lost. We need real faith. So it's sobering truth this morning. As he shifts gears right here, we see that there's not just a bogus faith that's a dead faith. There's an authentic faith that leads to a fruitful life. And as we keep moving through this text, James shows us what that is. What is authentic faith? Authentic faith is a working, active faith that produces good works. And he reaches back into the Old Testament and brings into view two examples that help demonstrate what this looks like. Notice the two people he selects to show us what authentic faith looks like lived out in real life. Abraham and Rahab. You couldn't pick two more different people in the Bible than Abraham and Rahab. From different sides of town, from different places on the social spectrum. Abraham's the the great patriarch of the Jewish faith, revered, respected by the Jewish nation. And then you got Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. And I love this. This is a reminder that, hey, this is reminding us, both of these, as they're demonstrating real faith, real authentic faith. This is an encouragement this morning because you know what this reminds us of? This reminds us that Jesus came to save all people. Jesus came to save Abraham's. He came to save Rahab's. He came to save everybody in between. 
doesn't matter who you are this morning. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter if you're rich. doesn't matter if you're poor. doesn't matter if you're the high-rolling businessman this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a street-walking drug addict this morning. Jesus came to save you. And every single person in this room, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, can experience the saving grace of God through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross, who lived the life you can't live, died the death you deserve to die, and rose from the dead, proving that he finished the work he came to accomplish. And when he really saves someone, when your life collides with the gospel, it cannot collide with something that powerful and your life not change. You will begin to bear real fruit. And we see that in each of their lives. First, you look at Abraham's life. And James is referring to the story of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. In that story, God tells Abraham to offer up his only son, Isaac, on the altar. And the son that is supposed to carry on the promise for Abraham's family. And Abraham clearly, as difficult as it was, is going through with obedience to God, lifts up the knife, but God doesn't stop. God stops him and, and provides a ram that's in the thicket to take the place of his son on the altar. But look what it says in verse 22, and this is where all the confusion comes in. So you see this radical obedience, right? But this is where the confusion comes in, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That phrase right there, justified by works, that's where a lot of the controversy, really all the controversy has come from regarding this passage. That phrase right there is why Martin Luther, the reformer, when in 1522 he led the printing of a copy of the New Testament, moved James to the appendix. He believed it was part of the inspired word of God, but it wasn't as inspired as the rest of it because he couldn't seem, he couldn't seem to reconcile what he had to say with what Paul had to say about faith. This phrase is why Martin Luther would later say, and I quote, I feel at sometimes like throwing Jimmy in the stove, talking about James. Because after reading Paul's works and how Paul hammered home this idea that we're justified by faith, he uses that same word, justified by faith alone and not by our works. You know, Martin Luther comes to this passage like a lot of other people have come to it. Like, wait a second, this has to be a typo. Maybe James and Paul, maybe they're not on the same page. I mean, are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Well, the confusion can be cleared up pretty easily just by understanding that, yes, they are using both the same words, but those two words mean very different things. So we use words in our vocabulary, right? I saw a bear coming out of the woods. Not really. I'm just using my imagination. Hey, will you bear with me for a few moments, right? We use the same words to communicate different things. And that's what's happening right here. When Paul uses the word justified in Romans, when he uses it in Galatians, when he uses it in Ephesians, it, it's, the, it's like a forensics term. It means acquittal. It means declaration. It means to be declared as righteous. All right. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, by the way, is what the story of Abraham and Isaac is, is pointing to. A lot of people will criticize, and the Bible will get scrutiny because what God who loves his people will, will ask a man like Abraham to sacrifice his son on the altar. Well, he didn't sacrifice his son on the altar. He was testing him to see if he would follow him, but it was also the big picture of what's going on there. He was providing a picture. He spared Isaac, but it pointed to a time in the future when God would not spare his own son to save us from eternal death. So it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, when you place your faith in what Abraham and Isaac, what that story points to, Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, Paul teaches that you're justified. 
You're declared as righteous positionally before a holy God. In other words, the righteousness of Jesus, when you trust in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect record that he lived in your place when you trust in him, his life and his death and his resurrection, his perfect righteousness, this is an amazing truth, is credited to your account. To your bank account that's more spiritually bankrupt, you know, the balance is negative more than you can even begin to fathom. And the righteousness of God is transferred to your account. And from that moment forward, when God looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Christ. All right, so when God says to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, now he sees you that way forever if you're in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2 16, Paul says, that happens because of your faith. That happens by faith. He says, justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Our works, our deeds can't do it. It's by faith. And so when Paul uses the word justified, it means declaration. You're declared righteous before God when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. When James is using this word right here, when he says justified by works, he's using the word in communicating the idea of verification. It's a verification. Your works are a verification of your faith. In other words, Paul is dealing with the root of your faith. James is dealing with the fruit of your faith. So James and and Paul are not like enemies who are facing off as people have kind of set them up to be throughout the centuries. Like Paul's the saved by faith preacher and James is the saved by works preacher. No, think about them. They're on the same team. All right, so instead of thinking about them as facing off, think about them like in a battle, back to back on the same team, fighting two different kind of enemies, right? You, are, you know, we love like Marvel movies and stuff, right? So y'all are familiar with that. Think, okay, same team, right? Avengers, all right? So think Iron Man and think Hawkeye. Actually, no, nobody cares about Hawkeye, all right? So <laughs> think Iron Man and, and Captain America, back to back on the same team, all right? But facing you know, a collection of enemies on either side that they have to attack in a different way. All right. So when you look at James and Paul, they're on the same team. Just read Acts 15. They're lockstep on the gospel. They're using the same sword. They're using the same gospel, but the enemies are different. Paul's dealing with people who are trusting in their good works for salvation. They have the wrong object of their faith. And he's saying you could only be justified Declared righteous because of your faith. Your works won't do it. James is dealing with people who profess to have faith in the right object of faith, but it's only in words. There's no actions to back that up. There's no proof in the pudding of their life that their faith is actually authentic. And so he's saying your works justify or verify that your faith is real. Again, Paul is dealing with the substance of our faith. James is dealing with the evidence of our faith. So if James is listening to Paul preach a sermon on salvation by grace through faith, James is, amen, brother. If Paul hears James preach this sermon on your justified by works in the sense that your works give evidence that your faith is authentic, amen, brother. And if you don't believe that, take time this afternoon to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul makes it clear that he is lockstep with James right here when it comes to your works proving that you have authentic salvation. So, Martin Luther, don't throw Jimmy in the stove. James and Paul are on the same page. James is teaching what's consistently taught throughout the whole of Scripture. And so, do we not see that in Abraham's life? In verse 21, James is saying, what was, was Abraham's faith not validated, proved to be real, 
Not just in this one. This is just one example. Right? This is, I think, 38 years from Genesis 15 to 22. So there would have been a, a pattern of progression of his you know, obedience to God. But this is maybe the biggest moment of, of radical obedience in his life. He says, is this not proof that what he professed all those years before in Genesis 15, when it says he was credited righteousness because of his faith? Does this obedience and this radical obedience not prove that that is true? And then he points to Rahab, right? And, and, and I want you to notice something right here. By pointing out these specific acts of obedience in the life of Abraham and in the life of Rahab, do you see what he's doing? Because if you know anything about Rahab, you know that she's going to show her faith is authentic by the way she treats people. You notice how James is bringing the royal law back up, isn't he? What's the royal law? Jesus said, what's the greatest? He was asked what the greatest commandment is. And he said, they thought he was going to pick one. They were trying to test him. They're trying to corner him. He said, it's to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see that exemplified in both of their lives in Abraham and Rahab's life. Authentic faith is active faith that's seeking to do the most important things that Jesus said to do. And that's to love God and love your neighbor. Abraham demonstrated, I believe, in a way that that first part of the great commandment, a radical all-in love to God by being willing to give up what was most precious to him, which was his son. Rahab demonstrates with her life a real radical love for people through her actions. Both of them lived life seeking to do both, but he sets up each of their life to give you an example of one or the other. We can say we have faith. We can say we love God and we love others. But the question is, is what, do you, what does your life say? What does your life say? It's been said, I like the way that this was phrased. Uh, it's been said by a lot of people. But does the tongue in your mouth and the tongue of your shoes move in the same direction? For Rahab, they did. We studied her story a few years ago in Joshua. When we got to it, remember, we called her the shady lady from Jericho. A Gentile prostitute from an enemy nation. And Israel gets into uh, the promised land. They're taking it back and they face Jericho, a fortified city, a monster of a city to take over. On paper, there's no way they can get in. So they send some spies in to check it out. Spies aren't very good because they get into the city and within like a minute, they're getting chased around. And they have to jump into an apartment in the wall and they jump uh, into the apartment of this this lady from, from Jericho named Rahab, who's a prostitute, had an apartment in the wall. And what we see in... Rahab, in the story of Rahab there, is that she cares for him. She takes him in. She treats him well. And the question is why? Why is she treating them with love? Why is she treating these people from an enemy nation with kindness? And we find the answer in verses 9 and 11 in Joshua chapter 2. We find that she has professed faith in the God of Israel. She professes faith in him, and now she's demonstrating that faith or verifying the authenticity of it, justified by her works in the way that she's risking her life to protect these guys that she don't know. These strangers who have come in, who she knows follows the God that she follows. And it's through her deeds of love that provide evidence that the faith that she professes is real, authentic faith. And so it is with us. We can say we love God. We can say we love people. What does our life say? When it comes to your love of other people, do you see clear signs of acts of service, deeds of love? Is there fruit there that's obvious? What James is saying over and over, and if, if there's not fruit that aligns with that in your life, you can't have assurance that you possess saving 
faith. That's why he says for a third time in verse 26, if you possess a faith that doesn't produce these kind of, kinds of fruit, it's dead. It's, it's dead. So it's pretty clear, right? This isn't that difficult to understand. We went out with the family the other night, and we were uh, eating at a restaurant, and I think it was Monday night. And it came up in conversation, as it often does, just some spiritual conversation, about people who are at school who say they're a Christian but don't live like it. And I made the statement. I said, oh, I'm actually studying this week, so I was telling the kids, uh, you know, that um, you know, it is true. You know, what you say doesn't necessarily reveal what you always really believe. But the way you live most often shows what you really believe, right? And the two older ones got it. Max said, what is that? What? What? I don't understand that. I said, well, Max, it's like this. If a kid at your school is bragging all year about he's an elite baseball player, plays on 17 travel teams, he's got high school scouts looking at him, He's got college scouts that are trying to get in touch with him about playing for their school one day. And then one day you go out to the playground and he doesn't know how to throw the ball. What conclusion are you going to make? And his eyes lit up and he goes, oh. So what he said was true when it actually came to seeing if he could do it. I found out that that wasn't really true. There you go. I said, everybody listen to Max. He got it. What's being explained here is not that difficult to understand. In fact, it's been summed up by a quote. It sums it up really, really well. You're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always has corresponding fruit. And so let me ask you, if you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, does your life support that claim? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have a genuine, real, authentic, living, vibrant faith? Or do you have a dead faith? Do you have a bogus faith? Maybe you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've spent years claiming to be a Christian. Let the Word of God examine your life. Is the faith that you possess, is it making you more obedient towards Christ? Is the faith that you possess making you more compassionate towards others? Is the faith that you profess, are you being transformed by the Holy Spirit inside of you? Is the faith bearing itself out in the way that you're living your life? And if you say, I have, I believe that God's word is revealing to me that I possibly have bogus faith, that I have dead faith. In fact, maybe you're there where you realize, oh my goodness, all I've had is fire insurance. All I've had is this profession of faith and a life that shows no evidence that I actually possess authentic faith. I would say, here's what you need to do. You need to turn to Christ. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is to rest deeply in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and to bow to him as king. You know, this is a, this is not this is a warning that James borrowed. You know that, right? This isn't original with James. In fact, and I invite you to do this uh, in Matthew chapter seven. If you turn there, Matthew chapter seven and verse 15. Listen to the way that listen to the warning that Jesus gave. This is James, older brother. And listen to what Jesus has to say about this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Sit still and listen to what Jesus said. Imagine you're there on that hillside. This is the end of his Sermon on the Mount. So this isn't like cuddle the the lamb. You know, Jesus wants to give everybody a hug. This is the real deal. You ready? 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. James says your works will prove your faith is authentic. Jesus says you do the will of my Father. That proves your faith is authentic. Saying the same things in a different way. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Did we not serve on a serve ministry at church in your name? Did we not attend church every single week in your name? Did we not read our Bible at times in your name? Did we not listen to Christian radio at times in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You think James plays? Jesus don't play. You think James doesn't play? Jesus don't play. Notice Jesus. This is different than a modern version of Jesus that is embraced by so many people in evangelical Christianity. Jesus leaves no room for neutrality. He he leaves out the possibility of playing this one in neutrality. Is your faith real or is it dead? Are you on the broad way that leads to destruction or are you on the narrow way that leads to life? Are you building your house on the rock or are you building your house on the sand? It's one or the other. It's not a both and equation. You're either in or you're out. You have a decision to make. Either you keep clinging to a profession of faith that produces no works or you run to Jesus. You deny yourself. You take up a cross and you follow him. It's the most serious, significant Eternally impactful decision you will ever make in your entire life. It's the, I believe, based on God's word and what we just read, if we believe it's God's word and we believe that it's true, we need to lean in and listen, that it is the most important decision for you to be confronted with in your entire life and in this moment. I can think, we're going to make some decisions this week. You made a lot of decisions this past week. Hundreds, thousands of them. Some of them, some of them maybe felt pretty heavy and some of them probably felt pretty significant. Right. I noticed that there's some decisions like that that feel significant and heavy that just keep coming up. Right. One of the most heavy decisions that I seem to make in the second most important relationship in my life with my wife is where are we going to eat tonight? Where are we going to eat? And and I'm confused because like I'm not good at answering that question because either I'm too much of a dictator or I'm too passive. I can't find the line. Right. Because you ask me, it's not going to take me long to decide. You ask me where I want to eat. I'm going to tell you. Right. I can make a decision right now. It's not, it's not that big a deal, right? Today, it can't be Chick-fil-A. You ask me tomorrow, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Chicken strips, waffle fries, cookies and cream milkshake, a lot of Chick-fil-A sauce, put it in my belly. Let's go. <laughs> if you're asking me where I want to go, I, but she isn't asking where I want to go. She's asking, where do you think I want to go? 
Uh, McDonald's? No. Pizza? No. Barbecue? No. Seafood? No. I can see she's, she's getting more, more upset, right? It's like she's hangry and she's shaking. Finally, she says, why don't we just, what do you think about going to eat? Which, what do you think means? Let's go there. What do you think about going to eat like a Panera? And let's just get a salad and drink soup out of a bread, piece of bread. Sure, that's exactly what I wanted. Let's do it. Let's go. You read my mind. Hey, there's all kinds of different decisions we face in our life. They all have different kind of consequences. Those decisions do have consequences, right? Real consequences. Listen, but not eternally significant consequences. And there's not a more significant decision that has more of a significant impact on your life than the decision that James in this text is driving you to. It's implied. A lot of you know, implications right here. It's, a, it's implied. He's driving you to a point of a decision. There's no more important decision than, than the decision that Jesus is driving you to make. And the questions that Jesus asks to bring you to that point of decision is different than the questions that maybe you deal with when you're in that car ride with your spouse trying to figure out where to go. Sometimes you're trying to figure out the question underneath the question. It's plain. Examine your life. Is your faith authentic or is it bogus? Are you a disciple in word only? Or are you a disciple in action? Are you walking on the broad way or the narrow way? Are you producing good fruit or bad fruit? Have you given me your life or have you only given me lip service? When people ask you the question in the Bible belt, are you a Christian? If the Holy Spirit is showing you in this moment that you possess bogus faith, Run to Jesus. Why would you hold on to a faith that he says is useless when you can run to him and experience a faith that's authentic? Run and deeply rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. Surrender to him as king. You either bow now or you bow later. Bow now. That the fruits of the spirit will start to define your life as he raises you to new life. Believer, there's a message here for you as well. Because if there is evidence in your life of authentic faith, not perfection, but progression, you've sensed the Holy Spirit's conviction through the years, through the months, maybe times of sinning, but you have, you know, uh, someone once said being a good Christian isn't about being perfect, it's about being a good repenter. Living in a pattern of repentance. Confessing sin, breaking over your sin, and striving for holiness. Developing in godliness. Not perfect, but progressively. Hey, if that's you and you possess authentic faith, we still wander, don't we? I know this preacher right here wanders. This past week you've wandered. This month you've wandered. This week you're going to wander. What this passage does is it reminds you the narrow path that you belong on. It's reminds you, hey, let's make sure we're living life the way that God's called us to live. And there's also a great encouragement for those of you who have confidence this morning and you possess authentic faith. Is if that's you and you're bearing fruit, God is at work in you. He's been gracious to give you new life. He's been gracious to begin a new work in you that he will complete. Hebrews says he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And one day, 
There's days where it feels difficult. There's days where you're going to be really reminded about the sheep that you are. But we must look forward and remember that there will come a day when we will see Jesus face to face and we'll be completely transformed and this work in progress will be complete. So until then, may we seek to live radical lives for him on the narrow path that we belong on. Let's pray.